April 28, 2019, in Denver, Colorado, and we're going to be reading from the Bhagavad Gita, chapter 7, The Knowledge of the Absolute. We're going to just start with text 1, and then we're going to go to text uh, 8 through 10. And children are welcome. You don't have to take children out if they're just being children. Okay, so text uh, seven, text one rather, in chapter seven, is one of the most crucial texts in the Bhagavad Gita to teach us how to find the divine in every moment of our life and every area of our life. And then there's further texts in this chapter that go into details. So I think many times people think they have various erroneous conceptions of spiritual life. One erroneous conception of spiritual life is that it involves externally letting go of a lot of things or activities that we label as material. So people think that being very spiritual means maybe you just live in a cave, you live in a tent, you know, you don't have a house, you don't have a car, you don't have a you know, computer or something like that. You know, you basically don't have things in your life. And, or you don't have any sort of material status in your life. You're, you're just sort of a, a, you know, a wandering, ascetic mendicant. Yes, you have a question already. Oh, you have a problem with the microphone. All right. It's like, wow, is what I said that interesting that you already have a question. Uh, is this better with the mic? I'm practically eating it? Okay. Very good. So a lot of times people think of spiritual life like that. They think of it as just letting go of a lot of things or people in life. Or else people have a misconception of spiritual life as being just what we would say are, to use a really pejorative expression, religious rituals. Or perhaps some sort of spiritual rituals if you want to be a little bit less pejorative. So, you know, you spend some time once in a day or once in a week or a few times a year, whenever it may be, doing something that's intrinsically, explicitly spiritual or religious. So you're praying or you're meditating or you're lighting candles or you're reading from holy books. And it's a compartmentalized thing. So it's, it's a certain compartment of your life and then the rest of your life doesn't really have much to do with the spiritual. It's like you have two separate lives almost. So there are these two strong misconceptions of what does it mean to be spiritual. Uh, when I move around, then I can't like, I have to take the mic with me as I move around to be right with the mic. Now the Bhagavad Gita is very clear that both of these misconceptions are mistaken. The Bhagavad Gita takes place on, of all places, a battlefield where a war is about to begin. And one of the main soldiers, one of the main commanders, is hesitant to be involved in this war. He really, he says, I really don't think that being involved in this war is very spiritual. You know, I, I should give up interest in, in winning. I should give up interest in the righteousness of the kingdom. Who cares? Just let me go off to the forest and meditate and forget about everything. So he's having this one misconception that spirituality means leaving everything, whatever it is that you're doing. And he also has a misunderstanding that he can't understand 
Well, if I do stay and continue with my, with my job, continue with my occupation, then how, how can I do that spiritually? It just doesn't, you know, I can understand that I can worship God and I can meditate, but how do I fight a war spiritually? It just doesn't make any sense to me. So he has these two difficulties, both of which are resolved very wonderfully in the Bhagavad Gita. And having the very extreme situation of being a military commander and applying spirituality to such an extreme situation makes spirituality very easy to apply to all of our daily situations. You know, how do I be spiritual when I'm a teller at the bank? Or how do I be spiritual when I'm washing the dishes? Or how do I be spiritual while I'm raising my child? Or something like that is, is, is much less demanding than how do I be spiritual as a military commander. So we're going to look here at this first verse in chapter 7. There, there's sort of a shift in chapter 7 of the Bhagavad Gita towards, okay, let's really get into how to find the divine everywhere and how to do everything just for the divine without any compromise. So we're going to read this verse first in the Sanskrit language. Shri Bhagavan Uvacha, Maya Shakta Manaparta, Yoga Munjad Madashraya, Asam Sayam Samagramam, Yata Jinna Shisi Chachchunu. And the translation is given by the founder of the Hare Krishna movement, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada. The Supreme Personality of God had said, Now hear, O son of Prita, how by practicing yoga in full consciousness of me, with mind attached to me, you can know me in full, free from doubt. So here he's talking about, Krishna is talking about how do we connect with him, with the divine, with our source, with the supreme person, by changing our consciousness. Maya Shakta Mana. Mana means mind, our mind. A Shakta means attachment. And Krishna is here saying, if our mind is attached to Krishna, if our mind is attached to the divine, Krishna literally means the all-attractive. If our minds are attached to the divine, then we know everything without doubt, and we are fully connected to the divine at every moment. We understand everything without any doubt, without any well, is that right? Is that wrong? Is it like this? Is it like that? We actually know. We're situated always in truth. We're situated always in ultimate reality. Which means we see things the way they are. Generally, in this world, we see things according to just the limitations of our senses, our preconceived biases on an individual level, on a cultural level. Because our vision is obstructed in so many ways, we're not able to know what's best for me, what's not best for me, what's best for others, what's not best for others, what should I do in life, should I have this career or that career, should I marry, should I not, if I'm going to get married, should I marry this person, should I have kids, how many kids should I have, where should I live, what should I do as a career, should I buy this thing, should I not buy this thing, and we really, we just can't see clearly at all. And so many of the things that we think will be good for us end up not being so. And so many things that we fear end up actually being good for us because we're not seeing reality. 
We're seeing in a, in a fractured, distorted way. And we have so many doubts and questions. We doubt ourselves. We doubt our perceptions. We doubt the people in life who take the role of some sort of expert or authority. But here he's saying, if you want to live a life free from doubt and you want to always be connected to the divine, all you have to do is take your mind and absorb it in the spirituality with attachment. A shakti, with attachment. To become attached to the divine. And this differentiation of where we put our attachment is the main demarcation between materialistic life and spiritual life. So how are we going to become attached to the divine? Now there's much advice in this regard given in the Bhagavad Gita, but I would like to focus on a few verses in this chapter which I think are extremely practical and extremely doable by anyone even if you're coming here tonight, is your absolute first time checking out anything other than the ordinary. Like, okay, well, I heard they had good food at the Hare Krishna temple, or whatever it was that brought you here tonight. So even if this is your first experience with spirituality, these are things that you can apply. And if you're a seasoned spiritual practitioner who's been in a spiritual process for decades, these are still things that enrich our spiritual practice. And I'm going to take off this very long and heavy. Would you like this? Well, it's yours. There you go. Okay. It's really big, though. I think it, if you want to keep it from hanging on the floor, you're going to have to put it around your neck like twice or something. Carry it around like a, like a train. All right. So we're going to look here at three verses. And in these three verses, we're going to look in depth at each of the areas that Krishna is recommending where we can find where what is apparently mundane and materialistic is actually spiritual and divine. Okay, in text 8, first we'll read the Sanskrit. Rasoham apsukanteya pravasmi shashi shurayo pranavasarvavedeshu shabjake purusham yashu. I am the taste of water the light of the sun and the moon, the syllable om in the Vedic mantras, the sound in ether, and the ability in men. So let's look at each of these. The taste of water. So probably most of you don't have, some of you have water with you. Huh? Some of you have brought your own bottles of water, and I was given a cup of water. So those of you who have water, can you drink some water? And those of you who don't, can you try to remember the last time you drank water? So it's, it's cool. It has a purity to it. It's very refreshing. When you've drunk enough water so that we're properly hydrated, there's a feeling about that, isn't it? Isn't there a feeling when, when you feel your body's properly hydrated? So that feeling, that taste, Krishna's saying, is Him. It is the divine. Now, all of us need to drink water several times a day. I did meet one person who'd never drank water. He um, was a raw vegan and grew most of his own food. And what he had for breakfast every day was a bowl, no kidding, this big, of tomato, raw tomatoes and cucumbers. Like this big of a bowl. You know, like what you'd use to make bread dough for 20 people who were coming over. And so he filled that with tomatoes and cucumbers and he said I don't need to drink water because I get plenty of liquid in the 
tomatoes and cucumbers. But often this is explained, this rasa, doesn't apply just to water, but it applies to anything liquid. And even beyond anything liquid, rasa means the real taste or the real pleasure in something. It's an Ayurvedic term that applies to taste. And we can think of it in a very technical way as sweet, salty, sour, bitter, pungent, astringent, and now they say this umani also. And we can think of it as, as the taste of food, which of course we can only experience when our tongue is wet, right? Maybe you did that experiment in school where you dried your tongue with a paper towel and then put sugar on it and you couldn't taste it. For all of our senses, also, there's some liquidity, right? My eyes need to have some liquid in order to function. There needs to be some lubrication in my nose, in my ears, on my skin. Correct? If there's no liquid of some sort, then all of my sense perception is impeded. I'm not able to enjoy any, any of my senses unless there's some sort of liquidity involved. And that liquidity, the taste of that, is actually God. Now, what a materialistic person does is tries to enjoy the taste of the senses and the sense perception without any reference to the divine. Just thinks, oh, here's some nice thing for me to touch or smell or taste or see or hear. That's just for me. It's all about me. All these sense objects have been put here on this earth for my independent pleasure. It's like I'm staying at the home of a friend here, and if, and I, if in her home I looked around and I said, oh, all these objects in this home, they're all for me to enjoy. Now certainly my host friend wants me to enjoy being in her house. She doesn't want me to suffer being in her house. She doesn't want me to be unhappy there. But she wants me to enjoy in connection with her, yes? If you have a guest in your house, you don't want them just taking your things. Like, oh, thanks, this is a nice chair. Right? A nice painting on the wall. You don't want them just taking your things and trying to enjoy them independently of you. You want them to enjoy the thing. You want them to enjoy your artwork. You want them to look at the artwork in your house and go, that's a beautiful painting. Where'd you get that from? Who's the artist? Oh, this is a really comfortable chair. Look at the design. You want them to enjoy what's in your house, but in relationship to their friendship with you. So in the same way, this world is a manifestation of divine energy. The Sanskrit is deviation in my Divy, in the sense word divy is related to the English word divine. This world is actually divine energy. But as soon as we try to see it separately, we stop seeing it as divine. We start seeing it as materialistic. And we get into a materialistic mentality. And as soon as I see the connection, then immediately my vision changes. Oh, everything that I'm enjoying with my senses is actually Krishna himself. Krishna is that taste. Krishna is that pleasure. He is that pleasure. And when we have that mood, that what I'm really relishing, what I'm really enjoying, what I'm really appreciating is Him, then we find Him everywhere. Not just in the water that we drink, but in everything that touches our senses. And when we understand that it's Him, then we have some appreciation and some attachment 
and some affection for Krishna. Does this all make logical sense to him? And as soon as I get that attachment and that affection for Krishna, then again, I can understand everything free from doubt. Let's look at the next one. The light of the sun. So right now, we have sunlight coming in through the windows. Now we also have the light of the bulbs in this room. In another verse, Krishna says he's the light in all luminous objects. That would even include the light from your phone. Computer. But if we think about it, even this light of the light bulbs in the room is ultimately coming from the sun, isn't it? Where is the energy coming? How is how's the energy produced? How's electricity produced here in Denver? Anybody know? Mostly coal. Okay, so what does coal come from? Sorry for the science lesson here. Plants. Where are plants getting their energy from? The sun. So the sunshine, the plants are really clever creatures and they're able to eat sunshine directly. Some yogis can do that too, by the way. So they can eat the sunshine directly and they turn it into plant matter. It gets compressed. And when we burn it, what are we doing? We're releasing the sun energy again, basically. Yes? And that release of the sun energy is producing... Again, light and heat in the light bulbs. So all of the light in this room, whether from the light bulbs or directly from the sun, is the sun. Okay. Generally, we take the light in our environment for granted. And again, we just think, oh, great, here's some light. So why don't we just right now become aware of the light in the room? Can we become aware that there's light in the room? Might notice the light that's radiating from the light bulbs. Notice what's coming in through the windows or the light outside that you can see in the sky. And see if on a level of not just intellectualism, but on a level of appreciation, that we can get some sense, wait, this light is Krishna. This light is the divine. He's present right now in this room as this light, allowing us to see, allowing us to function, allowing us to understand allowing us to have clear communication. All of that is actually Krishna. And having that awareness, not just on an intellectual, cognitive level, but also having that awareness on the level of attachment, on the level of gratitude, that I'm in his presence, which I can experience from the light. Then he says the light of the moon. So that we're not going to be able to experience right this minute. But we can think about the last time we saw the moon. I was noticing the moon, I believe it was this morning. This morning or last night, I can't remember which it was. But anyway, it was uh, between half and a crescent. It was like a, about a one-fourth moon in a very, very dark sky. And in seeing that light of the moon, I was remembering some Sanskrit verses from a beautiful poem about Krishna's activities. So the light of the moon is a little different from the light of the sun. The light of the sun induces us to be active in our life, to work, to cook, to clean, to do all the activities of our life. And the light of the moon induces us more towards relaxation. Of course, the light of the moon is also induces people towards romantic activities. But it's very soothing, whereas the light of the sun is intense, the light of the moon is very soothing and very cooling, but it still illuminates. And of course it's very beautiful 
Although the sun is beautiful, it's difficult to appreciate it directly because it's so intense. But the beauty of the moon is very appreciable. It's often compared to a pearl, yes, hanging in the sky. Uh, so, some sort of jewel, isn't it? Yes? So this light is also Krishna. So at least we can remember right now. Everybody can remember the moon? Yes? The last time they saw the moon. Maybe, maybe some, of course, sometimes we see the moon even in the daylight sky. And how did seeing the moon make you feel? What sort of emotions are, can, are, do we connect with the moon? Gratitude that at night we can still see if it's a full moon or a half moon. Appreciation for the beauty of the moon. The relationship between the shimmering moon and the dark light night sky. Or how even in the light of the sun when the moon is up, we can still see the moon. We can't see any of the stars when the sun is up. They all disappear. But we can still see the moon. That, that beauty and that uh, relaxation and the soothing nature of Krishna. That the divine and the spiritual is a shelter full of beauty, full of relaxation. Uh, something that's, that's just soothing and relaxing. And he says he's a syllable om in the Vedic mantras. Oh, hi Krishna. So, in every religious scripture of the world, it's explained that at the beginning of everything there is sound. Isn't it? Yes? That everything starts with sound. We've been talking about this in our classes in the morning. And in the Vedas it says, what is that sound? So in many of the world scriptures, it's simply a statement, in the beginning was the word. In the beginning was sound, yes? But what is that word? I don't But the Vedas tell us what is that word, and that word is omkara, or the pranavana. So, in one sense, uh, Krishna is all sounds, we'll get to that in a minute, but this sound particularly is a manifestation of the divine. Now, if you're not that familiar with the Sanskrit language, it's kind of a magical language. Like in a language such as English, and uh, I've actually created a, a literacy course to teach children how to read English. This is, so this is sort of my field. So in English, we generally, if we have two vowels together, they come and make a new sound because it's difficult to pronounce one vowel after another. We have it in a few words, just as skiing and vacuum. But, and then some names like Hawaii. But generally speaking, if we have two vowels together, we make a new sound. So if you have the word cream, C-R-E-A-M. So we don't make the sound of E like E, eh, like we would do in pet, or A like apple. It doesn't become cre-am. Right? That would be hard to say, cre-am. It, it's hard in our mouth to say two vowels together. So we combine them to make a new sound, E. We say cream. But that new sound, E, has no relation to that sound of E eh and A. Eh. Does everybody follow what I'm saying? E and A have nothing to do with E at all, physiologically. Now, Sanskrit isn't like that. When two vowels come together, you merge them into a new sound, but it's actually the sound that they make when you say them together. So if you take the Sanskrit sound A, uh, and you take the Sanskrit sound U, uh, and you say them together, oh, 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 you get oh. 
And so when you have an um and a nu together, you get this sound, o. Now in Sanskrit, the names of the letters and the sounds of the letters are the same. And those of us who've grown up with English may never have thought about the fact that our letter names and our letter sounds are generally not the same. We just think that's the way it is. You have to memorize their names, A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and then you also have to remember uh, B, K, D. And of course, a lot of our letters have more than one sound, which is very confusing. Like C says K, and it says S, and then if it's a C-H, it says Ch. So Sanskrit isn't like that. The names of the letters and the sounds of the letters are the same. And each letter only means one sound. So the first letter in Sanskrit is A, and that's the sound, it's, it's sort of like the U in bus in English. It's the sound that's made when you don't use your lips or your teeth. You're just, uh, 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 uh. And another place Krishna says that sound is also him. Because that's the, the most essential sound on which all other sounds are built. Then the next sound in Om is U. Again, U uh and U become O as soon as you put them together. And then you have a very interesting letter. You have M. Now, this M can be understood as a Sanskrit letter Ma, and it can also be understood as what's called the Anushwar, that little dot that you see on top of the M when you write on using our Latin alphabet. So you basically have three letters, A, U, and M. So A, Krishna says elsewhere in the Bhagavad Gita, is him. He is this basic sound of A. And this represents, or it, it is, actually, the divine as ultimate masculine energy. Then who is the divine as ultimate feminine energy. So you may have noticed on our altar we have Radha and Krishna. This is the divine as the ultimate masculine and ultimate feminine energy. And on that altar we have a form of Chaitanya who is the combined form of the ultimate masculine ultimate feminine in one form. Anyway, so A and U become O, which is the ultimate divine in both masculine and feminine energies, and then the M is ourselves. So when you say Om, we are actually connecting with the subtotality of the divine, ourselves, in that connection. And this was the original sound that exists before the creation. It's a living sound. I had an excellent question the other night that if we're saying that sound created space and sound created air, how did sound exist without air or space? And my answer is that spiritual sound that exists before air and space is alive. So the sound Om, or the sound Hare Krishna, the Hare Krishna mantra, which we were all chanting before in such a wonderful way. Uh, so this is actually an expansion of Om, Hare is the name for the divine as feminine and Krishna and Rama for the divine as masculine. And the particular grammatical form of the mantra indicates ourself calling on and connecting with the divine. So this sound, it's alive. It's not simply a vibration of molecules of some matter that is interacting with our ear. It is actually a person. It's a divine conscious person that when we say it, even though we're using our physical mouth and our physical brain and so forth, that sound is relating with us on a direct spiritual level. And it is this sound that manifests everything in the world. And if you're more interested in that, 
and you're able to, we have a class on this very topic tomorrow morning at 8 o'clock. The next thing is that he says, I am the sound in ether. Ether means space. So Krishna, after identifying himself just as the sound all, then he says, I'm all sounds. Okay, let's be quiet for a moment and be aware of any and all sounds. Whatever sounds we hear are actually the divine. They may be reflected and changed coming through the material atmosphere, but they have their origin in living spiritual sound. Now once you become very familiar with Krishna consciousness, you can notice that any sounds you hear can remind you of some particular activity or relationship in the spiritual world. So I hear different sounds and I'll think, oh, that sounds like some could be some instrument in a party going on. Or that could be some playing in the water of the moon. So in any of the sounds that we hear, even the so-called unpleasant sounds, if you remember, those sounds are actually divine, and they can connect me with the divine. And it looks like we're only going to have time to finish this first, because I want to leave some time for questions. The last one Krishna says here is ability in human beings. So all of us have some ability. All of us are sitting. We're not falling over. So we have some ability to sit. We have an ability to hear. We have an ability to see. We have an ability to think. Throughout the day, we're constantly doing things that require some sort of ability. If we can stop for a minute and be aware, what are our abilities right now? What are we being able to do? Maybe I can move my fingers when I want to. Maybe I can turn my head. Can I open and close my eyes? Can I swallow? Can I breathe? That ability is actually Krishna. And I find this particular way of connecting with Krishna one of the easiest because I'm always doing something. I'm always, at every moment, every day, demonstrating a whole range of abilities. And in each of these abilities, I can find Krishna. So in the taste of water, in the taste, the pleasure of any connection between our senses and their objects, in the light of the sun and all luminous objects, in the light of the moon, in the Om of the Hare Krishna mantra, in any sound in ether and in any ability, we can appreciate, have gratitude, have connection, and have attachment with the divine. And regardless of where we are, and who we are, and what we're doing, we can therefore develop this attachment in our mind for the divine. As we do this more and more and more, and there's many more verses in the Bhagavad Gita about how else we can find the divine within the world, our consciousness will change. We'll understand everything clearly, without any doubt, and then, although we may appear externally to be living much like anybody else in many other areas of our life, we may live in an apartment or a house, or we may be in a bus or in a car, or we may be earning some money and eating some food, we will not be in a materialistic consciousness. 
who'll be living on another plane of reality. So we have just a few minutes for questions, comments, additions, subtractions. And I think there is a wandering mic. Is there a wandering mic? There is the wandering mic. Yes. Hi, Krishna. I really appreciate these verses because um, many times during the day I'm not thinking about Krishna. Mm. And so these help me when I see them. Oh, water. I always think water is a taste of Krishna. Very nice. Um, you know, Krishna is a taste of water. But, anyways, I, uh, I'm a little confused about something that's come up in these verses. Okay. He says that he is. You know, the sound of but then that he's all sound. Or that he is the light of the sun, but then he's all light. So why does why he name those two? Uh, one specific example, and then one large general category. Hmm, that's a very deep and thoughtful question. Well, in one sense, all of the lights, again, are coming from the sun. So perhaps if someone just reads, I am the light of the sun, they might not think about, well, the light bulb is also indirectly the light so they might think well I'm just in a room here at 10 o'clock at night and there's no sunlight how can I connect with Krishna so I say well I'm the light of the sun but you know what I'm also the light in anything that's in life and in one sense all the sounds in the world ultimately come from the Omkara Om creates space which creates air which creates touch everything is coming from that so all the sounds of the world are coming from that so I see it's the same thing that you can say, all right, if I want to connect with Krishna, I can sit down and I can chant Om, or I can sit down and chant Hare Krishna. But I'm not going to be able to chant Omkar or Hare Krishna all day long. You'd have to be in a very unusual situation to do that. Even if you lived here in the ashram, that'd be pretty hard. You know? Hey, Hare Krishna. Oh, yeah, Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna. Oh, Hare Krishna. Krishna, Krishna. Hare, 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 Hare. Om, Om, Hare. I mean, that would be kind of hard. You know, you could do that. There is one story about Lord Chaitanya cleaning a temple with his associates, and it said if, if they, they were using it with buckets of water and brooms, and it said when they wanted something, they would just say, Krishna, Krishna, Hari, Hari. But I don't think that's going to work in your whole life, you know. Like if you want to buy an airplane ticket to Houston or something, you know, and you call up American Airlines, and you say, Hari, Krishna, 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 Om. I just don't think it's going to work very well for you. So, you know, it's, it's also helpful to know that all of these sounds are in one sense expansions from the Omkara. So we want to have some time when we're just focused on these sounds of Krishna the person, just on the Hare Krishna mantra. We want to have some time in the day like that, but also any sounds, we can say, hey, this is really just an expansion that Krishna's there too. Is that all right? Is that satisfying? Thank you. Okay, good. Anybody else? Yes. What happened to your flowers? Oh, well, you're saving them. Okay. You know, if you hang them up, where they'll get air all around them, then they'll dry without rotting, and they'll last for years and years. So what was your question? Your microphone, right? Like you're going to eat it, practically. He makes this even like this. What is Krishna's last name? <laughs> 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 
Okay. Well, that, that is a very good question. And you know that the whole idea of last names has, it doesn't always exist in society. Did you know that? It's true. So the, the concept of last names is there might be lots and lots of people named Peter. Or what's your name? Spandit. Spandit? Spandit. How do you spell that? Spandin. Okay, well, I don't, I've ne- never met another Spandin in my life. So you might not need a last name. <laughs> you know, I mean, maybe for you it's not necessary. But for a lot of people, if their name is just like Michael or Peter or Susan or Mary, you know, like you'd have to say, oh, I was talking to Mary. Which Mary? Right? It would be confusing. So therefore you know, okay, it's Mary Smith and Mary Jones, and you can distinguish between them. But it used to be, instead of using last names, people would say, Mary, son of John, or Mary, son of Michael, daughter of Michael, Mary, daughter of Michael, or John, son of Peter, or something like that. And that way you could tell who they were. And so a lot of last names are like that. You know, it might be... Sam Peterson. You've heard that for a last name, like Peterson or Davidson? Because that came from when people said that was the way they would distinguish people. You following what I mean? So what's your father's name? I I, I, I guess. I don't know if he's your father or your uncle or your friend. I don't know. My father's name is... That's a useful thing to know. Nandishwar? Nandishwar. So you're Spandin, son of Nandishwar? So you might be called that, Spandin, son of Nandishwar, before they had last names. Well, they, they would do that, though. And that became last names. Or a lot of other last names were by what people did. So if it was like Sam the Taylor, so a last name can be Taylor. Or Smith, like Smith is a last name. That's for somebody who would make things on an anvil out of iron. So last names came from people's occupation, they came from people's parents, or they came sometimes from people's hometown. Like if you'd say, oh, that's Sam who lives in Denver, and that's a Sam who lives in Boulder. So then he might have been called Sam Denver and Sam Boulder. And that's how last names came to be. But there's still a lot of parts of the world where people don't use last names quite the way that we use them. So for Krishna, Krishna's everyone's father, He's Ahambija Pradhapita. He doesn't really have a father and mother. And he's really, he's everywhere and every place. So you can't really say he's from a particular place. And he does everything. So you can't really say he's from, a, he has a particular occupation. So it gets kind of hard to give him a last name. But, but, he likes to play. Do you like to play? I hope so. So Krishna likes to play. And when Krishna likes to play, he has a place that he says is his place. Although every place is his place. And that place is Vrindavan or Raja. So you could say his last name is Vrajaraj, the king of Raja. And he, in love, he takes someone as his father. So you could say he's Krishna Nandanandana, he's Krishna the son of Nandamarsh. 
And he likes to take care of cows, so you can say he's Krishna Gopal. So you could give him a last name like that. And he'd be very happy, because that would be about what he likes to do for fun. But he doesn't really have a last name the way we have a last name. But I liked your question. I gave you a whole little history lesson there. A whole little history and sociology lesson. So it's 5.56, I think I have to end now, is that right? Is that correct? Yep, I'm at the end. Okay, so thank you very much. And if you're uh, interested, then I suggest you get a copy of uh, this book, Bhagavad Gita as it is, which we have in the gift shop. Thank you. Hare Krishna. Hare Krishna.